Okay. All right, I'm just gonna. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We will not today though, because today we will have a fantastic guest speaker, Janet B. Um, my name is Johan and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Sweden and I will be your host for today's meeting. Co-hosts are today, we got Betty C, we got uh, Janet B also and Sue L. Uh, and today's date is the 23rd of September, 2023. Uh, if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private, private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled five minutes before the questions and answers session. Uh, please note that uh, this meeting will be recorded uh, and uh, however the question and answer session which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study and also well today's meeting and also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post a link to our seven, seven tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. Uh, we will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available, available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. So without further ado, you do you say that <laughs> i will turn this meeting over to our fantastic guest speaker today i heard this woman before she's amazing it's gonna be a great meeting uh so janet b take it away well i don't know who you're talking about johan but um this wonderful person but anyway y'all are stuck with me um i actually just spoke at a meeting in Hungary this morning, and they had asked me to talk on step five. So since I have that talk all prepared, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and talk about it and just throw in some stuff that I think might be helpful. So step five is, as we all know, about um, getting near to our creator, the nearness of our creator. That's one of the step five promises. So, but before I get into it, I want to talk a little bit about me for those who don't know me and do a quick, maybe 10 minute run through of the first four steps so that I don't talk about step five in a vacuum. Um, my hope always when I talk is to convince anyone who's listening that the age of miracles is still with us, that there really is a God and that he is alive and well and launching search and rescue missions for addicts like us. So just a very little bit about me. Um, I first came into OA when I was in high school. I was already a full-blown compulsive eater. I remember walking out of high school classes across the street to the mall and just binging away. 
I stole food. I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and purging up to six times a day. <laughs> and I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. And I know a lot of times people showed pictures at my worst. I was about 25, 26 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, and that was even throwing up six times a day. I still had 25 pounds extra weight on me. But if I were going to show a picture, I would have to show a picture of a zombie. Because even though I looked kind of normal, I was a walking dead person. Um, I was a compulsive liar. I made up crazy stories just to get attention, including multiple times cutting myself with a razor and faking that I was mugged or raped. I remember one time going to the hospital for a fake rape exam and taking the pills that the very nice nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. Um, I wasn't well physically, clearly I wasn't stable mentally, and for sure I was not well spiritually, even though I believed in God. Um, at one point, someone in OA said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer that. I actually binged through my first seven years in OA until I was introduced to the God who I believe launched a search and rescue mission for me, just like he does for other addicts. Um, I was at an OA convention and I was actually eating compulsively there. And first I went to this meeting and this guy, and he was thin, he stood up and he said, I have the secret. And the room got so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And he said, next time you wanna eat, just don't eat. And everyone starts going, yay. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, if I could just not eat because I don't want to eat, I wouldn't be here. It made no sense to me. But um, fortunately, the next meeting I went into, and there was this woman with, you know, this beautiful blonde hair, and she held up a big book, and she said she hadn't binged in a year. So I'd been in OA seven years, and in that time, I think my record was two weeks. A lot of times I couldn't even stay abstinent until lunch. Um, and so this woman with these golden curls held up a big book and I swear she looked like an angel. Well, you don't walk up to an angel. So I turned to the person next to me who I thought I saw with her and I said, do you know her? And she said, yeah, she's my sister. Come, I'll introduce you. And thus started my journey to recovery. She said to me to read the big book. So it was a Saturday. I skipped the talent show that night at the convention, went up to my hotel room. I read the book. She said um, the next day, are you willing to do everything in here? Well, remember I said I did things like fake rapes. At the time I had a boyfriend, he was probably an ex-boyfriend at this point, who I had faked a rape with to get his attention. And I said, well, I'm not willing to make that amend to go back and tell him it was all a lie. And she said very wisely, are you willing to just do the steps and trust that by the time you get to your eighth step, you'll be a different person? And I said, okay, I can do that. Um, and my journey started shortly afterwards. And truly once I committed my life to God, and me, I, you know, who was binging and purging six times a day, it was like a hand reached in and yanked out the obsession. 
And September 30th, I think a week from today, by God's grace, will be 40 years of being protected by God. Um, so I'm always very excited to talk about these steps um, and the promises and how we can all find God. So again, I wrote this talk about step five. First, I wanna talk about the earlier steps so we can have some context. Um, I wanna talk about powerlessness because that's often what trips us up for so long, right? If we don't have a solid foundation for step one, there's no way we could have a solid two, three, four, or the rest of them. They all build on each other. It's like we don't go to third grade and not go to first and second. So powerlessness. On page 24 of our big book, it says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. It says the strongest desire is of absolutely no avail. I had a desire to stop binging. I just didn't have the power. And what they're telling me here is that normally my memory would be my defense, but it isn't here. Okay, that, that seems very weird. So let's break that down so that we understand it because it's, it's important. So normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. Right. Let's say um, I'm about to go to the beach. Well, in my memory are stored these data points telling me that if I lay out in the sun without putting on sunscreen, it's dangerous. I'm going to get a sunburn. I grew up in Miami Beach. Um, I know about sunburns. So if I'm about to go out in the sun, my memory grabs the data points of all these sunburns I have, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger laying out in the sun all day with no sunscreen will burn you. And I wish I could tell my son because he was in a tennis tournament last week. And on Monday, he told me he had blisters and sun poisoning. But next time he will remember. Um, another example I have, um, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or a friend who has a cat invites me over, my memory grabs the data. You had an asthma attack this way. You got a sinus infection this time. You got sick. Generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make decisions and says, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. So again, my memory keeps me from danger. But let's talk about food. Um, so I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. Well, I mean, I used to binge on a lot of things, but in particular, I can think of this one kind of cookie. It would come in a box of 20. I would buy a box and tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two. We know how that story always ended. All 20 would be gone and sometimes a second box. So in my memory were all these data points you promise yourself you'll just eat one cookie, but you end up eating the whole box. So there I go again, ready to go to the store to buy a box of cookies, telling myself I'll just have one. My memory grabs the data points, generates a thought that's ready to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box. You'll hate yourself. You'll gain weight. You'll be throwing up. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats, 
the bridge is broken and the thought can't get across to protect me. My memory failed to hold me in check and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods, right? Make a food plan that doesn't have my trigger foods or my alcoholic foods wouldn't help. I had a broken bridge and once broken, that bridge could never be repaired. By the way, I'm not saying don't make a food plan that eliminates your trigger foods. I'm saying that alone won't do it. For me, I had a broken bridge that could never be repaired. I was hopeless. Like Bill Wilson said when he realized he was hopeless and said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master because I had a broken bridge. How did my bridge get broken? We usually wanna figure it out, right? Why did I become a compulsive eater? And it's usually so we can figure out who to blame. And it's usually our parents. It doesn't work. I didn't become a compulsive eater because of my childhood, which at the time I would have said was lousy. And now in hindsight, I say was pretty darn good. Um, I was the lousy kid. You know, that's all I have to focus on. Um, so what do I do if my bridge is broken? I don't look to see why it got broken because that doesn't help. Um, and I don't try to fix it because unfortunately it can't be fixed. Self-knowledge won't fix it. I could know all my binge foods, all my trigger foods. That didn't stop me. Um, desire wouldn't fix it, right? I could desire to stop eating more than anything in the world and it wouldn't matter. Think about someone who has cancer. And if someone said to them, you must not really want to get better from cancer because your cancer cells are still multiplying. That would be mean. And that would be ridiculous because obviously the person wants his or her cancer cells to stop multiplying, but is powerless to make that happen. And that was me. I had an illness. I have an illness, which is basically in remission now, as long as I do certain things, but desire didn't do it. I was 100% hopeless without a miracle. Um, luckily, God is still in the miracle business and this program gives me the formula for a miracle. Page 45 tells me lack of power is my problem. Not lack of knowledge, not lack of desire, lack of power. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say the perfect food plan, the perfect meeting, enough phone calls, enough fellowship. Those are all wonderful. Those are tools that like give support, but that's not the solution with a capital S. The solution with a capital S, the book says, is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Okay, those are really powerful wor words. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So let's play detective here. We see that here that the big book gives me my first clues about how to find this power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And I have to find this power because I didn't have the power to solve it. If I don't have a bridge that works, 
I need God to come over and protect me since I can't protect myself. So if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be pretty smart. I mean, I have two master's degrees and I can't solve this problem on my own. If this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be strong because this illness kicked my butt and I'm pretty strong. I lift weights, you know, um, but this power has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And finally, finally, most important, well, actually a third thing, this power must have a consciousness, right? The wind is a power greater than me. I live in North Carolina. Right now we're under like a flood watch, a hurricane watch, a state of emergency. A hurricane for sure is a power greater than me, but it can't solve my problem because it can't think. Neither can a doorknob. Um, so this power has to have a consciousness, but most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So smart, strong, has a consciousness and cares about me. That's a power. That's a God who I can have a relationship with. So now we have some clues about God. And then um, page 53 gives us some more clues. It says God can be blocked by calamity, pomp, worship of other things and dishonesty. And my favorite line in the book is on page 55. It says, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or another, it is there. So deep down in everyone is the fundamental idea of God. That means when God created me, um, he gave me like two lungs, one stomach, one heart, two kidneys. And somewhere in there, he planted the fundamental idea of himself. So I could say I'm an atheist or an agnostic, right? This is America. I could say I'm a lung agnostic, that I have no lungs. But it doesn't mean I have no lungs just because I say it. And what they're telling us is, guys, the idea of God is there. It just may be blocked. Just like cataracts can block our view of the physical world. If I'm, um, if I have calamity, like I'm overly focused on bad things that have happened to others, pomp, which means um, I'm putting myself on the throne, worship of other things, which means I have like idols in my life, things that are more important than my relationship with God or dishonesty that's gonna block God. So I have to ferret these out and work to just get rid of these things that are blocking us. So then what do we do after we've gathered our clues and we believe there's God? For me, it really started with prayer. Okay, now why pray? Um, because prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I want a bag of groceries or a tank of gas, I hand the clerk you know, a $20 bill. Money is the currency in the physical world. But obviously, I can't hand God a 20 and ask him for power over my food obsession. The currency in the spiritual world is faith activated by prayer. So I prayed. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. That was my real step three when I surrendered my life to God. And I also started doing things that I thought 
this God would want me to do. Um, I lived in New York City at the time, so I didn't really know how to be unselfish, um, but I made sandwiches for homeless people. You know, I did things like that. I stopped lying. You know, me who made up stories about everything, I just stopped. If I caught myself saying something untrue in the middle of a sentence, I would say, wait, what I just said, that's dishonest. Um, I started doing what I thought God would want me to. I surrendered my life to God. On a practical note, what does that look like? It means I'm out of the outcome business. I stopped doing things to get a result. I do them because I'm obedient to God. Um, so for instance, I may have a desire that my kids who are in their early 20s or in college, that they go to church while they're in college. I can have a desire. I mean, I'm a human being and God created me with desires, but I can't have demands and I can't have that as my goal. I can't have an emotional demand because that's outcome oriented. So I just do what I think God would have me do. When they were little, I took them to church. I hopefully model good behavior, but whether or not they go to church while they're in college is none of my business. And I don't even ask them anymore. And I believe God won't judge my success by whether I've raised church going kids. He'll just look at my obedience to him. Um, and living that way is how I stay sane. I've learned that like things like whether my kids are going to church or, you know, whether my husband's doing what I think he should. Years ago, it was like I wanted him to stop smoking, um, anything like that. I learned the best thing was to pretend I was swimming um, in one of those like pools with the lanes marked off with a rope, swimming toward God and anything on the other sides of the rope. All it did was get in the way of me focusing on God, how other people live their lives is on the other side of the rope. The future is on the other side of my rope. I keep focus on God and very few things outside of like my recovery um, or any of my business. I don't worry about politics. I don't worry about, you know, whether this world is gonna blow itself up because of global warming, unless there's something I believe God wants me to do. So for instance, um, one thing that just, breaks my heart is human trafficking. So I give money. I believe that's what God wants me to do. Um, so that was how I lived my third step. And then I did my fourth step. I looked at my character defects. I looked at my resentments, especially where I was wrong. Um, because the big book tells me that if I harbor resentments, if I'm a safe harbor for resentments, like a harbor, that's where ships go to be safe, if I'm a safe harbor, I'm cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. My only hope of recovery, right, is being protected by God. So if I'm cut off from that, I'm in trouble. It's like being cut off from my spiritual oxygen supply. So I had to resolve my resentments. A couple of things I avoided doing, I avoided saying, well, this person is spiritually sick. So I just need to see that and pray for them because that just sets me up on a prideful hilltop. If I have a resentment, there's always something wrong with me. And a lot of times my part is, I think people should run their lives in a way that makes me happy. With my kids, it was often, I think my kids should make life choices that will make me happy. And that's selfish. My kids can do what they want. And by the way, once I stopped trying to manage and control them, 
I started having a fantastic relationship with them. Um, or things like, I think I should only have to do things I want to do was often my part. Um, I looked at my fears and I love how the big book talks about fears. It says that fear is an evil and corroding thread. Evil. That's really interesting. Emotions aren't evil. If I'm sad, no one's going to tell me that's evil, but they use the word evil to refer to fear. In fact, they said fear ought to be classed with stealing. It causes more trouble. I'm thinking class with stealing. Okay, what class is stealing in? And I thought, well, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. And I thought, okay, how does fear fit in there? And then like, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If I'm in fear, I'm not trusting my creator. I'm trusting the other team. So I had to look at all my fears and drill down to see why I had them. So for instance, I had a fear once that if I discipline my daughter, then when she turns 18, she'll never want to talk to me. If she never wants to talk to me, then when it's Thanksgiving and my husband and son are dead, now they're both perfectly fine, by the way, when they're dead and it's just me and my daughter, she won't invite me for Thanksgiving and I'll be all alone and sad. So I realized I was not disciplining my daughter out of a, out of, um, because I was taking out some kind of insurance policy for a very far away future in which my husband and son are dead and my daughter isn't talking to me. I asked God to remove the fear, see my dishonest thinking, which is that disciplining children appropriately leads to them hating you for the rest of their lives. And then I take the action God would have me, which in that case was appropriately discipline my daughter. And as I said, my daughter and I have a beautiful relationship now. Um, okay, so I finished up my step four with an analysis of my harms, my past relationships, and the crafting of a sex ideal. And then I'm ready for step five. Um, and I think the promises in step five are so beautiful. And this step is just so beautiful. On page 72, they talk about why we should do a fifth step. And it gives me three reasons. First, it says, I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change. I'm trying to not be such a selfish, self-centered person. But look at the second reason. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about just believing in God. It's about having a relationship with him. And this step is going to help me with that. And the third thing it says is to help me with the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship with God? And it says, you know, okay, I've already started to see what these defects are. Now they're about to be cast out. I love that wording. They're about to be cast out. I don't do the casting out. God does that. That's how it works. I look at my defects. I admit them but then God removes them. I think we read these words so often sometimes that it's easy to miss out on just how awesome they are. Um, these are my defects, a big wall that I've built between myself and God. But what does God do? Does he say, well, you built this wall, Janet, you caused this mess, so you clean it up yourself and I'll be waiting here when you're done. He doesn't. He comes in with a broom and a mop to help me clean it up. 
He keeps just proving his love for me over and over. So in the next paragraph, they give us a really important reason why we can't skip a fifth step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking. We may not stop binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of this program, they wondered why they fell. Okay, well, how come they fell, right? And they say, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And yes, dishonesty by omission is still dishonesty. At the top of page 73, it says, these people wondered why they fell. And I say, a person should always know why they fall, right? Why we get into relapse. If we get into the food, the solution isn't to just say, okay, I'll start again tomorrow. Uh-uh. We need to see why we fell so that we can go back and clean up any deficiency in our step work, um, see where we need to redouble our spiritual activities. Um, not doing a thorough fifth step is a cause of relapse. And the AA 12 and 12 goes into great detail on this on pages 55 through 57. After talking about all the different consequences of avoiding step five, which include irritability, anxiety, remorse, and depression. So by the way, if we're feeling any of those, we should ask ourselves, have I done a thorough step five? And if I'm through the steps, is there any step 10 stuff that I should be exposing that I'm not? Because if there's, we're not, we will, the result will be irritability, anxiety, remorse, and depression. And then they say that most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we're willing to try it, try it. I mean, that's a really strong statement, but I just saw the beautiful imagery there. The grace of God enters to expel my destructive obsession. Like what a cool image. God comes in and kicks out the illness, just chases out the food obsession the way like a woman with a broom might tell a cat to just scat. That's how strong God is. And as a side note, it's always important for me to remember that it's the grace of God that gets rid of the obsession, not any hard work that I might do. It's like if there's a raging hurricane and my house is flooded and the sheriff's coming around in boats with bullhorns saying there's helicopters coming to rescue stranded people, my job is to get to the roof so that the helicopter can rescue me. I can't just say, pick me up at my front door. I mean, I'll drown, um, but let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. All I did was climb up those, let's say 12 steps to the roof so that I could be in a position to be rescued. So continuing on page 73 in the big book, they say that more than most people, we lead double lives. We're like actors. To the outer world, we present our stage character. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but know in our hearts, we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt. And guilt is only helpful if it encourages us to really admit our character defects and take action. If I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, well, good, I should feel guilty. That means my conscience is doing its job. 
But that guilt is only helpful if I go to you and confess and give you the $50 back. Often we carry around a vague sense of guilt and we beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm a piece of crap. And we call that humility. That isn't humility. And by the way, um, if we have shame and feel that God won't help us because we've done some really bad things, well, that's okay. So did all the founders of this book. That's why they put a nine step in. But sometimes we just have this feeling of shame, not that I've done bad things, but just that I'm a bad person. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of God helping me. And I say to that, there's two solutions. One, we could spend like, I don't know, $20,000 in therapy to get a therapist to convince us that we're worthy. Tried that, it didn't work. And the other is to realize that you can go through this book. Worthiness is not a requirement for God's help. Willingness is. I certainly wasn't worthy for all that God did for me. Didn't deserve any of it. Um, and let me never think that I was worthy. I wasn't worthy. Um, but again, worthiness isn't a requirement. Only willingness is. And just the kind of beautiful irony in this program, it says in the book, in finding God, he found himself. When I found God, I stopped having shame or guilt or anything like that for one reason, because I wasn't just thinking about myself and my shame and my guilt so much. I was thinking about other people. And then I just felt like God's got my back. Yeah, I have defects. I mess up when I do. I try with his help to fix it. But God's got my back. God loves me. And that just really takes away fear. I was diagnosed about a year ago with some syndrome. It's like actually 10 syllables long. And it's basically my body has like no antibodies to certain things. So if I got some illness that like anyone could get for me, it could be deadly. And I just remember thinking like, it's okay. Like God's got me, whatever happened whether he wants me here or in the hereafter, like I'm okay. I trust his plan better than my plan. Okay. So the book goes on to say that the alcoholic or for us, the compulsive eater is revolted by what he does on his sprees. It says coming to his senses, he's revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. I love that word vague. We can't be vague. We can't have these vague boogeymen in the closet. We can't say, I think I sort of kind of did some not so nice things in the past. We can't go to God like that. I need to go to God and say, I faked a mugging and went to the hospital and lied in the hospital. I lied here. I cheated there. I stole from Susie. I was nasty to Sally. I need to be specific. Why? Because if I don't get these things out, the book tells me that I end up pushing these memories far inside myself. And that leads to constant fear and tension, which leads to drinking or binging. So fear and tension, mental and emotional strength. And the chapter continues by saying, psychologists generally don't work for us because we're generally not honest with them. And again, they keep hammering home honesty, saying we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world. So I wanna say a few things about honesty. Well, basically one, if we're not honest, we're not going to recover. 
if we're not honest, it's like we take a big black Sharpie and write the words, keep out God across our hearts. God absolutely won't coexist with dishonesty. Ways we're often dishonest is with our sponsors. Sometimes about food, right? We lie by omission when we don't tell them things that we know we should tell them. Or even not about food, we know the things we should say. And think about it, if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, what I've really done is I've made an idol, a false God out of my sponsor, thinking that my relationship with my sponsor is what's going to get me recovered. But a sponsor's job is to help me get a relationship with God. My sponsor tells me the job of a sponsor is to take the newcomer's hand and put it into the hand of God. I'm better off being honest with no sponsor than dishonest with a really good sponsor. And if I'm being dishonest with my sponsor, I'm actually stealing from her. I'm stealing her time. She has the right to decide who she wants to work with and she can go out and work with someone who means business. If I'm not honest, I don't mean business. So we are people who have to be honest. Whether or not earth people have to be honest, that's not my business. Um, but for people like us, it means no lies, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes, no stealing. We have to live a way of life that's rigorously honest. So I'm going to flip over to the AA 12 and 12 for a bit. On page 60 there, it says, until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is largely theoretical. When we're honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're still talking about honesty, but they're going even further. They say, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Of course, it's a lot easier for me to go to God and say, God, I faked a rape and I'm sorry, than it is to confess that to another person. It's harder because there's fear. What if my sponsor doesn't like me? What if my sponsor judges me? Um, and as an aside, I think a sponsor needs to make sure that a sponsee feels safe enough to confide anything. I always tell my sponsees, anything they tell me in the fifth step goes with me to the grave and I'm not a judge. I let them know some of the you know psycho crazy things I've done so they feel safe. Um, okay. Back to the 12 and 12, still on page 60, where it says, people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Um, so they say it's important to do that because it is likely the guidance we get from others to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. Okay, it says establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. That is mind boggling. The power that like flung the stars into the sky wants contact with me, wants a relationship with me. And if I'm doing these steps, I can have that relationship with him. 
The 12 and 12 tells me I have to find the right person to do this inventory with. Generally, someone who's done this work before, usually our sponsor. Um, the big book is clear. We can't do our fifth step with a member of our, that we can do it with a member of our family, but we can't, but we cannot disclose anything which will hurt them or make them unhappy. It says we have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a rule for both the fifth step and our whole lives. I can't save my own skin at another person's expense. I have to put the welfare of others ahead of my own. And the big book continues and says, we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Okay, being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap. You know, people say, oh, you're too hard on yourself. I used to hear that all the time. Um, but it's necessary in the sense of being ruthless about admitting my character defects and admitting where I'm wrong. So the mechanism that God has set up to forgive us of our defects and change us is us confessing, admitting, asking for forgiveness. Um, so being in, of course, God sees what my defects are. And if I'm in denial, he could see them just as well. But for whatever reason, he has decided that the mechanism he uses to transform me from a selfish, self-centered, narcissistic brat into a halfway decent human being is examining my character defects, admitting them and asking him to remove them. That's what I think it means to be hard on ourselves. It doesn't mean I'm a horrible person. I may or may not be. That's for God to decide, not me. It's my job to just look at my defects, ask him to remove them and make amends where I've harmed someone. Um, so it says, once we have the right person, we go to it holding nothing back. Um, we hold nothing back. Page 75 says, we pocket our pride. And boy, do we pocket our pride. And then the promises. Um, these are some beautiful promises in step five. But just like I didn't want to talk about the step itself in a vacuum, I don't want to talk about the step five promises in a vacuum because it's really cool to see the progression. Um, the first promises we get are with step two. There are no step one promises. It's just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's like if I went to a doctor and admitted I had diabetes. Okay, I admitted it. But just admitting it, nothing changes. Remember, the big book tells me my problem is lack of power. So what I need to get better is power. These steps are like a continuum to getting more and more power. Step two, I get a little, just enough to get me to step three. And in each step, I get more and more. Page 46 talks about where we get our first infusion of power. It says, as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we begin, we're just beginning here, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided. So there's a condition provided we took other simple steps. So once I say, maybe there is a God and maybe this God can help me, I start getting power and direction. And then step three, top of page 63, gives me more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, capital E, so it means God. It says being all powerful, he provides what we need if, so another conditional promise, 
if we keep close to him and perform his work well. And then it says that established on such a footing, we become less and less interested in ourselves. So the spiritual experience is starting here. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being like the selfish and self-centered Janet that I was, I become more tolerant, more loving, like my creator is. It says we become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. Now listen to this. As we felt new power flow in, so we get more power. We got a little in step two, a little bit more in step three. We enjoy peace of mind. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. That means we start realizing there really is a God. And he's not just up in the clouds somewhere. He didn't just like create the universe and now is spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix. It says, no, he's here. And we begin to lose our fear. We begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. And they say, that's what it is to be reborn, reborn in God, of God. Um, and the fifth step promises, they're my favorite of all. Step five, we're told that we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. It felt as if I'd been nearsighted all my life and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That's the best way I can describe it. It says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. What a great visual that is. I love going to Aruba. And I remember coming up from the beach and brushing the sand off my bathing suit and the sand falls. That's what happens. Our fears fall from us. And then this, we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just an awareness, we know that he's with us. Whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is with me. And it says, we may have had certain spiritual beliefs. That was me. I was never an atheist or an agnostic. I always believed in God. Well, that knowledge did nothing at all for me. Um, if I were diabetic and I believed that insulin could help, but I never injected it into my arm, it would do me no good that I believed in it. So it says we had beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience, God rewiring our hearts. Says the feeling that the drink problem, or for me, the food problem has disappeared, will often come strongly. Often, I take that to mean more than 50% of the time, we're not obsessing about food. Says we feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So often we feel like that. But as we get through to, um, and we finish our steps and get to step nine, then it promises us, hold on. It says page 84, after we finish a nine step, we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol or for us food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor or food not on my food plan, not interested anymore. If tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. Now, when we're near a hot flame, we don't sit there and say, oh, that's a hot flame. I shouldn't touch. It's automatic. We've been changed. 
and it says we react sanely and normally, and we will find this has happened automatically. We will see this is top of page 85. Our new attitude toward liquor or food has been given us. Well, who gave it to us? God, without any thought or effort on our part, it just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it. We're not avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had placed, who placed us? God, in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. The problem has been removed. This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So um, what I have to do then is I have to make sure I keep in fit spiritual condition. I finish my fifth step. I ask God to remove my defects in steps six and seven. I clear up the wreckage of my past in steps eight and nine. And by the way, I did go back to that ex-boyfriend and tell him that um, that time I had called him and said I was raped and he took me to the hospital, that the whole thing was a lie. Um, he, I was hoping that when I confessed, he would want to get back together with me. He did not, um, but that's okay. My uh, exhibit A of how good God is, is out in the garage pottering around today. Um, Truly, I got more than I ever deserved. And then we spend our lives doing 10, 11, and 12. So what's a 10 step? A 10 step, you know, wars have been fought on whether a nightly review is a 10 step or an 11 step. So I call it a 10 step just for simplicity's purpose and making prayer and meditation an 11 step. It doesn't matter what we call it as long as we do it. Um, our nightly review we look at during the day, what resentments, what fears, who have I hurt? What could I have done better? Um, it's really like a four step is cleaning up the wreckage of our past. A nightly review, a 10 step is cleaning up the wreckage of our day. And then in the 11 step, we pray and meditate so that we can know God's will for us. It's like in step three, I made a decision to turn my will and life over to God, that God, I surrender. I'll do what you want me to do. Well, I have a boss, like I have a job in real life and I have to do what he wants me to do. And how do I know? I ask, I'm like, if he doesn't say anything to him, I'm like, Howard, what do you want me to do today? You know, got a block of time for you. What do you need for me to do? Well, if I do that with my earthly boss, how much more do I need to do that with my heavenly employer, right? The book says that we are his agents. That means he has a will of things he wants done on earth. And it's my job to just see what my role is in his big plan. So I pray and I meditate. So um, my practice is generally about an hour every morning. I will um, do some spiritual reading. I'll read the Bible or read some spiritual literature that makes me love God. Um, I pray. And in my prayers, I incorporate praise. I worship, right? In the big book, it says like we all worship something. So I don't just go to God with my laundry list of requests. I start by acknowledging who he is and I worship him. And I thank him, right? I do a gratitude list. A lot of us have that app where we can put gratitude. I think that's good, but I think it's dangerous because it be, could become more like a homework assignment where we just list them off and text them to someone. 
So I'll list them, but then I will say, God, thank you. And I'll go through my list and I will thank him. And then I pray for people in my life who need help. I pray for things that I need help with. I pray constantly um, to love him more and that God helps me to keep my head in the cloud with him more and help me to be more useful. And then I meditate. I have a journal. I play some music, usually for about 10 minutes. And I'll just sit there and I'll say, God, you know, I pray for knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry it out. And how can I help the still suffering compulsive eater? And then I will listen and I will write down anything that comes to my head. And some days it's nothing. And some days there's stuff. Um, and then step 12, try to carry this message to other compulsive eaters. This message in the big book. So I sponsor, you know, I always try, I have a lot of people I've got through the steps, so I'm loosely in touch with, but I always try to have, you know, a few people who are like hungry and desperate to go through the steps, working with a few at a time, um, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, because that helps me, that helps me, that keeps me sober. Um, and when I sponsor people, I just try and I, I tell them the goal isn't to have you be, get your PhD in big book. The goal is to get through the steps. For me, it usually takes people on average two to three months to get through the steps. I know some people do it more quickly. Some people do it more slowly. That's what I found because as I'm taking them through the steps, there's just sort of a mentoring process that takes a little time. And if my sponsee picks up, I generally do not drop her unless she's not doing what I tell her to do because page 58 says, um, if you've decided you want what we have and what do we have a spiritual experience as a result of these steps and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, then, and only then are you ready to take certain steps. So if a person isn't ready to do the, or isn't willing to do it, I don't feel an obligation to keep working with her, but if she is willing, I will do everything I can to help. Um, I just want to close with how they close step five in the 12 and 12. It says this feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place where, where, where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Look at that word toward. We get to a point where we're no longer running from food. We're running toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward an ever-deepening love relationship with God, toward a better ability to help other people. I'm not running from, I'm running toward today. And if someone's sitting here today who isn't even sure that there is a God, you can start with the maybe prayer. It might go something like this. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me, but if you're there and if you care, I need help. And the worst that could happen is that you're talking to dead air. Um, but what if there really is a God? What if there is? And what if that prayer is the catalyst that allows God to say to his angels, okay, our next search and rescue mission is going to be for that one. 
um, so he can start the renovation project on our hearts so we can have a spiritual experience um, so that he can change us so that our plans and priorities become more like his plans and priorities. I think we have to pray and surrender and then live our lives doing what we think God, if he existed, would ask us to do. Because when that happens and we surrender our lives to God and he gets involved in our lives, the food obsession doesn't stand a chance because the food obsession and a heart filled with God cannot coexist. And if God comes in, the food obsession loses and God wins because really and truly, I mean, I'll just close with this. The age of miracles is still with us. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you so much, Janet. That was amazing. What uh, what the uh, talk on step five and all the other steps as well and your story. Just amazing. Thank you so much. Um yeah, I'll be stopped the recording. Sorry. Um...